I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. On today's episode, I talk about regrets, nostalgia, survivor's guilt, and the journey out of the dark valleys. A few years ago, I had a powerful reoccurring dream that shaped the way I think about regrets. I was about 37 at the time. I had the dream four or five times in the span of a month, month and a half. In the dream, I awoke in my 19-year-old body, my 19-year-old self. It was a good time. I was in excellent shape. I had no debt. I was teaching Bible studies. Dated my now wife, Emily. But I had all the knowledge of my 37-year-old self. I knew all my mistakes. I knew that it was wrong to accumulate student debt, delaying children, putting off seminary, aligning myself with the wrong churches, not buying that stock, wasting money on dumb stuff, letting my health slip, all that stuff. And now I can avoid it all for my family and give us an even brighter future, or at least that's what I thought. In my dream, I slowly realized I could do it for a family but not for the family I have now. If we got married sooner and immediately had kids, it wouldn't be the kids we have now. A different sperm would find its way to a different ovum, and a different child would be conceived. No doubt, we would love that child, but it wouldn't be our firstborn son, Hudson, and we wouldn't have Athanasius, Cademan, Nicaea, Galilee, and so forth. To have them, I would have to perfectly recreate my life. And that's where this dream becomes a nightmare. Every little decision, every little word spoken, every step taken, every little and big mistake, every win and loss, I would have to recreate them all to have the family I now love, to have this life. At this point, fear would overwhelm me in the dream, and I would usually wake up next to the woman I love, into the life that I love. The dream freed me from the tyranny of regrets. Many mistakes were made. Many sins were committed. I do regret things in my past, but I've also repented of those sins. And Christ has forgiven me. Somehow, He has worked through all those things, both good and bad, to give me this blessed life that I now have. I can't change the past. If I could, I'd still screw things up. So I've learned to simply repent of sin and trust in God's perfect providence. It's good, too, because the good old days can rob you of your future. Nostalgia can be a killer. I know, because he killed my brother. I'm the oldest of three brothers. It's me, Justin, who sometimes goes by Alex, and our youngest brother, Wayne. We're separated by two years each. So two years between me and Justin and four years between me and Wayne. And it's Nostalgia who killed my baby brother, Wayne. Now, let me explain. 
Nostalgia is a sentimental longing or wistful affection for the past, typically for a period or place with happy personal associations. Those who are ruled by regret can get stuck in the past, just like in my dream I wanted to go to the past. They can long for some happy time before they made all their mistakes. And this happens because they either refuse to actually address their regrets or have come to believe there is no recovery from their mistakes. The end result is they come to believe that their best days are behind them in some supposed good old days. They mentally time travel out of their present to a happy past, and in doing so sacrifice their future. This is exactly what happened to Wayne. He and I were very close once upon a time. I was his wrestling coach in middle school. I'd go to all his matches and teach him every trick I knew and root for him. He, he did pretty good. We would go to the movies together maybe two or three times a month when we were younger. We saw The Phantom Menace together. He actually fell asleep in the middle of that movie. And I went home upset that they were ruining the legacy of Star Wars. Little did I know how bad it would get. He caught my love for boxing. We'd watch Tuesday night fights together in USA. And he became a huge Sugar Shane Mosley fan and actually would email back and forth with him from time to time. He stayed with me at my dorm at NKU on the weekends. We would watch movies there, too. And I remember us watching The Blair Witch Project and just thinking it was the dumbest thing we had ever seen. He would attend the Bible studies that I taught back in high school and in college. And when I planted a church, he was there on the first couple of Sundays. He lived with me and my wife for a time. My wife loved him. He always called Emily his sis. And he thought the world of her and, and she was fond of him. He looked up to me and I looked out for him, or or at least I tried. Wayne, sometime in his teens, late teens, got involved in drugs. He started with things like alcohol and marijuana. And in his 20s, it led to heavier drugs, psychedelics, and even at one point, cocaine. And he ended up stealing from everyone he ever knew or loved to feed his addiction, including myself. I actually had to kick him out of our house and... It was a very difficult thing to do. I paid for him to go to rehab two or three times, but it, it never really took. He ended up homeless on the streets for years at a time. He eventually caught a breaking and entry charge, and to his credit, turned himself in and did time in prison. When he came up for probation, I begged the officials not to release him. I knew he wasn't really clean yet. And yes, you can get access to drugs in prison, but I knew you'd have even easier access to drugs on the outside and also access to my family, my father and mother in particular. But the officials didn't listen and they let him go. In the years that followed, the repeated overdoses that Wayne had, I don't know, a couple a year, he was always in the ER, they damaged his brain and he became a different person. The kindness, the sweetness that really dominated his character was replaced with a sort of self-loathing and just, he was mean. He was a mean person. He could even be cruel to my parents at times. But that sweetness would take over when it came to my children, to his nieces and nephews. He really did love them. He saw them as the future, and he sincerely wanted them to do well. He would always want to see them 
hang out with them, but I couldn't let him into their into their lives. He was a wreck. So I'd tell him he needed to get sober for six months and hold a job for six months, and then he could see them. That was my only standards, but he was never, ever able to do it. I still didn't cut him off fully. I'd take his calls from time to time. They're always the same. He'd talk about the good old days, and we did have a lot of fun. As little kids, we rode trains around town and jumped off train bridges and played basketball, and we created boats and flowed down little rivers. It was all sorts of cool things. But we weren't kids anymore. We had moved on. We were adults. We were building families, or at least I was. And he would want to talk about all the movies we saw together when we were younger. But how many times can you have the exact same conversation? The man I knew was dead. And his ghost just kept texting and calling me over and over. It was this shadow of the man I knew. And talking to him was painful. In the last weeks of his life, he moved back to Cincinnati. I told him not to. He he wouldn't listen. He was dead set on seeing my kids. He kept pressuring me to get together for the 4th of July. He talked about how awesome the foster extended family holiday parties could be. And they were cool when we were kids. We had huge firework wars and ate watermelon and barbecue and played football and got to hang out with our aunts and uncles. It was a very special time. But I could tell that Wayne was still drinking, that he was still involved in some form of drugs. So I refused, and I told him that I had left that in the past, and I was building something new, which made him very mad. And I warned him to get his life straight. I told him that, like all of life, we're passing away like a vapor. He said to me, I ain't, I'm alive. His third from last text message was, I care nothing more than your kids not making the horrible mistakes we made. I didn't respond. Four hours later, he died in the corner of a homeless shelter all by himself. Substance abuse didn't kill my brother. It was a symptom. It was regret and nostalgia that killed him I just listened to his last voicemail and I know at some level he was trying hey bro it's Wayne uh, just hoping you give me a call back um, I'm just packing get ready for leaving in the morning but just want to see how you were doing I thought you'd like that sign last night I took a walk and um, anyways, yep, I love you. Bye. You wanna feel how it feels. You wanna know, know that it doesn't hurt me. You wanna hear about the deal I'm making. God, get him to 
Think of the after effects of a traumatic event as a dark valley. It would seem to make sense that those who have themselves been in that dark valley should be helpful guides out of that same valley. This, of course, assumes that they found their way out. I've found those who talk most about the valley and its darkness are those who have been camped out there ever since first entering it. They make poor counselors and guides. They can only tell you about life in the valley. They can't tell you about the way out or even the life after the dark valley. They've never left it. It's their new home. They'll kindly make room for you to camp with them in the dark valley. They'll indulge your desire to commiserate, for they have the same desire. And therein lies the rub. You don't camp in those dark places. You walk through them. You set your eye on the faint light breaking over the horizon in the distance, and you stumble forward. It's been said, when you're going through hell, keep going. It's a journey through the valley that potentially makes someone into a helpful guide. Those who have never been in the valley but understand its topography are more helpful than those who have set up camp there. After the death of our daughter, an older woman took an immediate interest in my wife. This woman, too, had lost a child under very tragic circumstances. They talked on the phone a few times, and as I recall, even met in person a couple of times. It, however, became clear to us both that this woman was stewing in her pain, and it was, it was real pain. But she had set up camp in the dark valley, and we had every intentions of pushing through to the other side. She didn't, but she also didn't want to be alone. So we had to cut her off. We had to. We, we needed light back in our lives. We were trying to process our uh, grief of losing Nicaea. She wasn't there yet. We, we couldn't be her counselors. We were in the middle of it. We were in the darkness, and she wanted to stay, and we had to keep moving. We had other children. We, we had a future. Nostalgia exists back in the world before the Dark Valley. It's the world before that decision, that event, that thing that changed everything. It's the world before the pain, before the regret, before the sadness. But there's no such thing as a time machine. There's no going back. You can't sit. You can't stew. You can't look backwards. You have to move forward. You may walk. You may run, or you might just crawl, but you have to move forward, even if it's just inches at a time. Listen, brothers, don't camp out in the pain and avoid those who do. They are, little, they are of little help and probably counterproductive. Were you abused? Were you deceived? Did your wife wrongly divorce you? Did you lose access to your kids? Did you waste years on drugs or video games or porn or just worthless pursuits? Do you have regrets? Are you staring longingly backwards at the good old days or sideways at some sort of soothing distraction? Are you sitting down when you should be walking forward? David says, 
Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of the death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Amen. But David walks through. Escaping the valley is hard, because sometimes people refuse to come with you, and you can hear their voices screaming, calling you back to the valley, back to depression, to self-loathing, addiction, fornication, and laziness. And you feel guilty for getting to the other side, for surviving. I pled with Wayne for 14 years to turn from his ways. I wanted him in my life. And there was a time, in the words of Kate Bush, I would have asked God to swap our places. But he wouldn't listen, and I couldn't stay. So I left him there. Do I feel guilty? Yes, a little. He was my little brother. I'm the firstborn. He, in a sense, was my responsibility. I had to ask my wife, did I do all I could do for him? She assured me that I did. And frankly, it's hard to believe. But I'm just a man. I'm not the God-man. I'm not Christ. I can't save my family. I can only preach the gospel, be an example, and help them as the Lord provides. Survivor's guilt is a real thing. But our first and ultimate allegiance is to Christ. In Luke 14, Christ himself says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. you got to leave the past behind you. You can help carry some burdens, but you can't bear someone else's cross. If father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister won't come, you can plead with them, but you can't stay. You must love Christ above all, so much so that comparatively speaking, it is as if you hate all others. Look forward, climb out of the valley by God's grace, Head towards Zion, brothers. These days, I enjoy the present and dream about the future. God is good. I enjoyed the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the 10s, and now the 20s. There were some good times back then. But I'm eternal. Many of my best days, most of my best days, are yet to come. I, like you, if you are a Christian, will live forever and ever. Ever So we will enjoy not just the 2010s, but the 20 millions and so forth. Our mistakes can't rob us of a future. To live is Christ, to die is gain. And I has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. So, take heart. Take heart, brothers. Fight the good fight. Keep pushing forward. And until next time, be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. And let all that you do be done in love.
Because